Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of Cybersecurity Hot Takes with me, Reese, the marketing person, and... HB. (laughs) (laughs) I do uh, global sales engineering here. And 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 I'm Jason Casey. I'm the CTO. (laughs) You think you get better at the and, but I kind of like that it's still a, a terrifying surprise. So... You know, what I, what's on my mind today, guys? Um, Jason and I were just having a little chat recently, and he said something that was super easy to remember, and it's stayed in my mind, and I wanted our listeners to hear it. And it's about zero trust. The hot take for today is zero trust doesn't actually mean don't trust anything. And that was a lot of negatives, so just think about that really quick. So anyways, back to the, the little story. Jason said, you know, if zero trust were aptly named, it would be the minimal axioms of security trust necessary to prove outcomes. And, you know, that, that just stuck with me for obvious reasons. Um, so, you know, HB, what do you think of that hot take that Jason said? My God, the first thing I thought was jinx. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think the last time when we were talking about some of this, the topic was uh, whether security analogies uh, were a good thing or not. And That's right. One of the topics that we sort of veered off to was that zero trust is a sort of uh, hyperbolic sort of explanation of what people are genuinely doing when they talk about zero trust today. And from my standpoint, like you look at what uh, Gartner was originally trying to sort of focus on and what um, uh, Google was trying to do with their Beyond Corp paper, the idea of uh, zero trust is really just to create a counterbalance and an alternative vision to like the perimeter security and castle and moat stuff that everyone's been doing for, you know, as long as networks have been around. And so in my mind, what we've ended up at is that people kind of balance like least implicit trust, least overprivileging and least breach impact. And so those three things sort of, uh, in my mind, define like a successful zero trust strategy for for what it's worth. Well, it's interesting because zero is a binary, right? It's, It's zero or not zero, like zero or one. But least, that's more on a spectrum. So, you know, where where do we fit that into the reality of the zero trust situation? You know, I, I think, uh, again, like that's the hyperbolic part of it in my mind, at least, uh, that is it really possible to get to genuine zero trust? Like if the idea is to move to maximum transactional trust and maximum kind of uh, on-demand, just-in-time authentication and verification and least privileging and whatnot. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine a scenario where, where you're truly at zero because then you've like really solved the problem. Uh, but again, like, like my perspective is probably drawn from sort of a pragmatic read of the space. Like, I just think that like, when you look at what people are doing, it sort of sits on this like continuum of 
I did nothing and I just called it zero trust. <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> I tried a little bit to improve a couple of these things and now Good enough. <laughs> on my zero trust journey. So I have a different take on zero trust. And I, I generally don't like the idea of greater or least or maximal because um, ultimately that implies that there's a, a continuum. And the reality, at least the way I think about zero trust is you either trust something or you don't, right? And and a, a zero trust framework, and the reason I had that kind of mathy statement is it, I do think it really boils down to like proving a thing. Like, how do I know a thing is true? And, you know, all of our formal reasoning, right? Whether it's the logic we do in schools or the proofs that we go through in college to prove, you know, theorems and whatnot, it always starts with a set of axioms, right? Or a set of assumptions that you assume to be true, right? I assume that uh, if I connect two lines in a plane, it makes a line. If I connect two points in a line, if I connect two points in a plane, it makes a line. If I span two lines, it forms a plane. Like these are these are axioms of geometry, right? Two parallel lines never cross. The uh, I can form an equilateral tri an equal, uh, a triangle of equal sides by finding the center. Uh, by drawing a line, finding the center of two circles that have the radius of the line at the bottom, and essentially they'll form intersections for the other triangle. That's a theorem, right? It's a thing I can prove from the axioms, right? The four axioms that I started with. All four, uh, proof systems, all formal systems, they start with things that you accept to be true, and they try and keep this as small as possible. And the reason they try and keep this as small as possible is because once you start building your system out, right? proving the implications of, the, of, those, of those assumptions. Complex systems tend to collapse on themselves because they sent, they, they, you can very, start, very soon start to show contradictions, one equals zero. It's no different in a security world, right? So zero trust in a security setting is, I want to have some sort of a formal system that I can reason about whether I can trust a thing or not. If there's too many things that I have to trust in that formal system, then the, 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 the formal system itself, it's not a question of whether it's less good or, or, or better or not good enough. It's more of a question of, is it sound, right? Are there things that I'm taking to be true that in fact are not actually true? I've enriched my system so much to where it just collapses in on itself, similar so to... What would the basic axioms of zero trust be? And, and I think you said keeping it simple is important because you need to have a foundation upon which to prove things. But... The security ecosystem, it's all about defense in depth and integrating systems and increasing interoperability and visibility. So that to me kind of seems at odds with maintaining a minimal number of axioms. So what does that mean so, for so, practitioners? So let's stop calling it axioms because we're probably losing half our audience every time we say the word axioms. <laughs> Axiom, axiom. Um, but let's say, let's say assumptions, like yeah, assumptions okay. we take for fact. Um, I would say that no one is going to argue with the statement that you should have a minimal number of assumptions that you take for fact in a security architecture. Yeah. Right? Um, that's probably not going to be controversial. What you were describing in my mind is much more of the outcomes of reasoning about a minimal set of systems. Okay. And it, it's no different in like good engineering design. Good engineering design isn't, isn't uh, uh, bespoke creations for every problem that shows up. It's recognizing that most problems can be broken down into a set of sub problems and you only need a couple of tools 
that are composable, that can be combined in different ways to solve these larger and more complex problems. So in the world of security, uh, I, I think it's actually a valid question. Like what are, if, if we were to try and take this as a more formal methods uh, process, like what are the axioms of a zero trust architecture? What are the axioms of a design system? And then what is implied from that? And we, we already know the goals that we want the system to arrive at. So you could also maybe look at it as working backwards, right? But but I think one of the core things that, that you have to adopt as an axiom is you have to adopt uh, almost like what manufacturers am I going to trust? And, and so the practical example of that is we talk about at work uh, TPM chips all the time. TPM chips, type of enclave, it's, it's, it's either on die in a processor or on a board uh, in a modern computer. It lets software create crypto keys where those keys physically can't move, right? Um, we are implicitly trusting the manufacturer of that TPM device to have followed the TPM spec. Like that is, a, that is an assumption that we take for fact. Mm-hmm that the manufacturer did exactly what the spec says and nothing else. If that assumption were to not be true, some of the consequences that we depend upon of using a TPM ecosystem also become not true, right? So what are, what are some of the implications of that? Some of the implications are the TPM works in the way that the spec says, the manufacturer also protects um, uh, the process and um, so there's this thing called a, a root key, an endorsement key that actually lives on each of these TPMs that I can use to actually track back to the manufacturer. So when I'm trying to, let's say that I want a proof that is in order to allow a device to connect to my network, I want it to prove that it has had an unmolested boot process, i.e. the bootloader, the BIOS, and the operating system are all OEM genuine and have not been modified in any particular way. Yeah, no tampering. With a TPM system, I can get a structural proof that gives me that. Now, at the core of it, I, I, ha- I do have to trust a small number of TPM manufacturers. But, but there, and there's one or two other things. But beyond those one or two other things I have to trust, I can actually use a protocol to kind of prove all the other implications and know for a fact whether I'm dealing with a tampered or non-tampered um, instance of an operating system. Uh, another example is kind of in the certificate system, right? Like in the in the X509 certificate system that we power HTTPS or most websites on, we do have a core a core root of trust, right? And it's essentially the uh, the root that our browsers use uh, to trust CA roots, right? We basically assume that the CA, the organization that operates the CA, is following. Um, security practices uh, does not have their does not actually sign things with their root key, only signs things with intermediate keys, follows the appropriate uh, uh, practices, etc. And then we use that almost to bootstrap our proofs along the lines that you know I am in fact talking to the the website owner of name X who controls the private key that is endorsed by this this CA system, right? We don't have enough time to get into all of the mechanics of it, but we we do have structural proof systems at work today. They're really minimal and they definitely have have gaps, i.e. things they don't cover, but they're consistent and they're correct. And they do provide really, really strong foundations for building a, a better security architecture. So, so are you talking about like strict provenance assurance? Like, like are you suggesting that like zero trust uh, is essentially like whatever comes like truly before the zero trust and that's like the assured provenance 
like uh, no, 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 no. So I, I'm recasting Zero Trust, right? So you can you can also say I, I I refuse your reality and I choose to adopt my own, and, and that's fine. But I'm recasting Zero Trust in in more of a, a structural sense, right? It, for my mind, um, that, you know, being kind of like engineering focused and math focused, I want I want structural security protections, right? So a structural security protection is is something that I can actually have a proof for, right? Like a mechanical proof, whereas a non-structural security system is, uh, trust me, all of my people are good people and you can look at my code and surely if you can't spot the bug, there must not be a bug, right? We all kind of know the fallacy of that statement I just made, both from a practical sense as well as from a, uh, you know, uh, something called the, uh, the halting problem sense. Um, but uh, a structural proof is much more along the lines of, I know a thing to be true because based on some sort of reasoning system with a very minimal set of, of core assumptions, I can prove it. That's really what I mean. Provenance in my mind would be a use case that you could use such a system to then prove that the, the chain of custody of this system and the chain of custody of this key or the chain of custody of the software has been with parties that I trust. So would you feel okay if I changed it from least implicit trust to no implicit trust, no overprivileging and no breach impact? Mm, no. no breach impact sounds weird, right? Yeah, I, it's uh, clearly this is a longer discussion, but it's, <laughs> I guess the, 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 the reason why least implicit trust doesn't quite feel right is because that feels more like a property as a, a, of a system, as opposed to making people really understand that there is a system and the system has a core set of assumptions. And from those, and it also has a, a set of reasoning primitives, right? Like, and, or negation implies, and based on those assumptions and that reasoning, there's all sorts of consequential properties of a system. And then you can also look at it from a system design perspective, right? What are the properties that you want a system to necessarily have and nothing else and kind of work backwards and then try and figure out what this, what a system should actually be shaped by, right? If, if that makes sense. I apologize. Some of these things are a little bit harder to work into analogy, um, probably because I'm just not very good at it. Uh, but also I, I spent this morning actually reading some of the technical materials where they're, they kind of shun the analogy and jump straight to the stuff. So switching between the two sometimes takes time. Yeah, and you know how Phil Venables feels about analogies. We don't want to, you know, inside <laughs> yeah. another blog. I, I guess still want to know we, what happened. Yeah, we got to ask. I, I think the stuff that I'm really struggling to comprehend about this is a zero trust architecture is made up of many systems. Yep. And all of those systems have their own inherent assumptions that they operate off of. And some things are, are provable, like um, attestation within a TPM, but some stuff... Is it possible to have things within a system that aren't provable? Oh, yes, 100%. I think. And then does that mean it's a bad system or is it just our systems like that sometimes? Uh, so, uh, so there's some very famous proofs that in logically consistent systems, there are true things that are in fact not provable. Um, mm. So, so you like actually, faith. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, no, you, you have hit on some deeply profound insights that uh, were first discovered uh, in the, was it the 40s or the 50s? Um, so yes, time travel back. <laughs> there, there are absolutely things in systems that are unprovable. Yeah. Uh, I think a more, so, so what, what people have to understand when they're thinking about systems and properties of systems 
is focusing on the right things to prove. And with zero trust, if you had to pick three things, Uh what would be those right things to prove? Uh, Integrity of the hardware would be number one. Integrity of the operating of the application uh, stack all the way down to the bottom. And so what I mean by that, I, I didn't mean to make a Feynman reference, but now that I hear it out loud, I hear it. Um, what I mean by that is uh, in, in the TPM, you have this way of measuring software. And so you can actually measure the software integrity from BIOS to bootloader to OS to application. So uh, when I say all the way down to the bottom, that's what I mean. So mm. hardware integrity, um, application integrity. Um, and this is where the and, and so now we're getting to the edge of the industry. I would love to be able to include configuration integrity. Um, that doesn't seem to exist just yet. Um, at those three things, we actually start to solve a lot of kind of common problems that are exploited. Um, clearly key integrity, uh, although I did, uh, you limited me to three, right? So, <laughs> um, but with those first three, what, what are the consequences of having those first three systems? I will always know as both a resident on the system or resident off the system, whether I'm dealing with a molested system or not. I will always know if a system is going to operate, uh, what its configuration is and nothing else, right? Now, again, doesn't mean there aren't bugs in the code, doesn't mean there aren't bugs in the hardware, right? So there are limits to things, but but that's kind of a profound statement. Like as a service provider, I know I'm talking to software I wrote as opposed to software that someone else is emulating, right? Mm-hmm. I know I'm talking to, to hardware that follows this particular spec and nothing else. Um, like those are, those, are, those are kind of profound properties that have a lot, pretty far reaching implications. Would you add anything to that list of three, four things, HB? You know, as the dumb implementation guy, all I have to say is that like uh, getting any of those properties in uh, systems broadly is super exciting. And uh, that's a lot of what excites me about the way that our platform is being built. So um, yeah, no, no, I I think... uh, we're in sort of the early renaissance of like uh, formal methods and formal verification and like uh, a broader range of critical systems. And I'm just glad that smarter people are working on these problems and solving them <laughs> when I have a hard time like fully comprehending them. What and a time to be alive, the renaissance. On that note, anyone listening is actually into formal systems. <laughs> We're always uh, up for hiring good people, and we actually do work like that in multiple areas of our product. That's a good plug to end on. <laughs> Jason, any particular roles right now? Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, obviously all of, our, all of our roles are generally software engineers. We're, we are looking for product managers, too. Cool. Uh, but we expect our product managers to be kind of technically trained, former engineers, or are deeply familiar with engineering problems. Um, the types of problems that we work on uh, that you kind of have to, you almost have to be working on already. Um, and we're just an opportunity for you to scratch that itch that you've had for a long time. Um, uh, so like language design, um, uh, properties of language, uh, properties of proving uh, things about languages, but in real systems. Um, uh, cryptographic protocols with certain interesting proof properties. Um, but again, with an eye towards application and actually building them into real systems. Nice. Um, anyone who is uh, into excuse me, operating system development, driver development, again, uh, with an understand a, a deep understanding of, you know, how operating systems are composed and then like, what does it mean to have a, a trusted operating system? Uh, 
Mm. Um, yeah, no, it's a, you know, formal math has been around for a long time, but like ap practical application in industry is, I'd say is less than five years old and uh, we're still in the beginning. Early Renaissance. Well, listeners, if you are that mythical technical being, please <laughs> apply but only if you like and subscribe first and check out <laughs> next week's episode. As always, we don't know what we're going to talk about, but we'll find out real soon. We don't always know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that's also true. That, that's, that's an axiom. Excuse me, it's an assumption. <laughs> we'll catch you all next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.